The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Last book of the Old Testament. And let's read these ancient words, 2,500 years old. And let's stand in reverence to God's word. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says Yahweh of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the fields cast its grapes, says the Lord. All the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says Yahweh of hosts. These are inspired ancient words. Amen. may be seated. Malachi's audience was a tough one. As you read the book of Malachi, you realize that the book is structured around a series of disputes. God says, but we say. And those disputes are not to be seen as somehow theoretical arguments that Malachi used to structure his book. But rather, those disputes were probably ones that Malachi himself, in all likelihood, heard as he was bringing the word of God to the nation Israel. Malachi's message, as you read it, is indeed um, direct. Malachi's message is hard-hitting. Malachi's message is confrontational. As Joyce Baldwin says in her commentary on Malachi, she says, Malachi is the faithful pastor who faces his people with the possibility of ultimate rejection but hopes all the time to win them. And so the book is hard, but but Malachi's book is not only a confrontational book that calls us to repentance. Malachi's book is a book of hope in God who is always faithful and who never changes. That's the constant undercurrent of the book of Malachi. In, 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 in the midst of dispute, in the midst of confrontation, in the midst of all of that, there is this incredibly strong, consistent, steady undercurrent that continually points the people to their faithful God who never, ever changes. As we begin our section today, it is not the section that I would have chosen to preach On the last Lord's Day of a year, it's not the section I would have chosen to preach um, for a New Year's Eve sermon, but it's the section that if we're going to finish Malachi next Lord's Day, we have to deal with. 
And so I trust that in the providence of God, we are exactly where he wants us to be. In fact, I'm convinced of it. Now, in verse 7, Malachi says, as the mouthpiece of the living God, he says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. This particular section begins with Malachi pointing out the sin of the people of perpetual straying. The nation had had a long history of disobedience and almost an uninterrupted history of disobedience right up to the present time. And the reality is is that in the life of Israel, God had graciously given his statutes. God had graciously given the people the stipulations or the terms of the covenant. We need to remember that as God reveals his will, as God reveals what is the duty of man, as God reveals what what is necessary for his people to do in order to honor him, that that revelation is in and of itself a gracious revelation. God has graciously, mercifully revealed what needed to be done. And the fact is, is that in Malachi's day and in ours, God hasn't changed and his standards haven't changed. And Malachi says, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and you've not kept them. In other words, what Malachi is pointing out to the people is that unbelief and disobedience was a family tradition. A long family tradition. And so the people would continue in their unbelief. They would continue in their disobedience just as their fathers had done. And by the way, that particular uh, indictment, you are disobedient just as your fathers were disobedient. You are unbelieving just as your fathers were unbelieving is a consistent witness in the prophets, especially the book of Jeremiah, where God, through Jeremiah, consistently says, you're walking in faithlessness, you're walking in disobedience just as your fathers did. And what we need to realize is that such disobedience to God's command, such disobedience to God's covenant is unbelief in God's word. By the way, we don't have time to turn there this morning, but that's the very uh, case that is made in Psalm 78. In Psalm 78 and verse 17, God indicts the people for rebellion and for sin against him and disobedience, and he connects that in verse 21 to the fact that you did not believe me and you did not trust in my salvation. In a sense, all disobedience gets rooted back into unbelief. Disbelief in God's threats and disbelief in God's promises. And so the the particular oracle that we're looking at does not start off on a good foot. It is direct already. It's confrontational already. And then, right in the midst of this direct confrontation, just as we saw in Sunday school... God then turns around and says something that is astonishingly gracious. He says something that is magnificently merciful. He gives a gracious promise to them. He says, return to me and and I'll return to you. And so here are these people who are recalcitrant, who are disobedient, who are rebellious, who are unbelieving. And what God says is, listen, 
you return to me and I will return to you. By the way, that very same statement was echoed by Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 3. Now, of course, the language of return is the language of repentance. And what God is saying to the people is, I, the unchanging God, say that I will actually return to you if you return in repentance to me. And that is God's immutable policy of grace. You turn back to me, you repent, and I will always turn back to you. As uh, Eugene Merrill puts it, he says, his covenant word is as firmly established as He is. And so God's word goes out to a people who had rebelled against him, who had not believed him, had not walked in his ways. And instead of the message simply being, it's now judgment time or curtains or whatever the case, God doesn't say that. He says very graciously, return to me and I in turn will return to you. Now, the people of God knew what it was to have, have God withdraw. In fact, God had withdrawn from them back in chapter 2. and verse 13, God talks about another thing that you do is you, you go and you cover the altar of the Lord with your tears. And, and you basically, you gripe and complain because I haven't answered your prayers. And that's right, because I've, I have withdrawn from you. But what he says here is, I promise you. If you but repent, if you but turn to me, I will in turn turn to you. This is absolutely astonishing, amazing grace. How many times do you think it would take for us to turn away from the Lord and to have his just judgment fall upon us? Just once. Just once. But God in his mercy and grace says to the people, although you deserve covenant curse, although you deserve judgment, graciously, mercifully, I'm telling you, turn back to me and I will gladly, joyfully turn to you. This is a message of grace. There are some of you, and and you perhaps feel like you have turned away from God so many times that he is absolutely done with you. You feel as if you've turned your back on God so many times. You feel as if you've trampled on his revealed will, on his law, his commands so many times that you are just absolutely convinced. You know what? God must be so sick and tired of me that I cannot turn back. I mean, because all I'm doing is saying the same old things, confessing the same old sins, and I'm turning once again. Finally, I bet God has just said to me, enough! God's word to you this morning is, return to me and I'll return to you. Now, would to God that the people of Israel would have thought, wow, in the midst of our rebellion, if we but turn to God, he will turn to us. But that's not the case. What they say in the last part of verse 7, but you say, that's the formula, but you say, Right on the heels of this most amazing, gracious promise. Return to me and I'll return to you. But you say, how shall we return to you? Now, this is not a question for information. This is not stopping and asking for directions. This is not saying, Lord, 
that's great if you could only just tell us the mechanics of repentance or show us the path of repentance or give us three steps so that we know that we've repented. That's not the case at all. In fact, this question, like every other question that they ask in the book of Malachi, in these disputes, is a denial of the assertion. This is not, oh, we want to repent. How can we repent? This is a why should we repent? Eugene Merrill puts it like this. He says, how shall we return is not an earnest entreaty for information, but a self-serving declaration of innocence. The people, in effect, are saying, what need do we have to return since we've never turned away to begin with? Joyce Baldwin simply says, the call to repent meets with no response because there is no awareness of any shortcomings. And so, all of a sudden, the people hear this incredibly gracious offer by God. Return to me, and I'll return to you. The the, the door of God's mercy is opened wide to them, and they retort with a statement of, Repent, us, you've got to be kidding. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is God's kindness that comes to us and convicts us of our sins. It is God's kindness that comes to us in that conviction and says, return to me and I'll return to you. But what short circuits the process is our unwillingness to see how the truth applies to us. What short circuits the process is an unwillingness on our part to see where we fall short Where that process gets short-circuited with us is when we refuse to embrace the wounds of God's kindness that are designed for our repentance in order that we may be healed. Now, unbelievers do this all the time. They refuse to own up to their sins. They refuse to actually look at themselves in light of what God has said about them. They may hear it. They may, they may have somebody speak it to them. They may hear the message, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or, or they may hear, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Or they may hear something like Psalm 32 or Psalm 51. Or they may hear the message that the wrath of God comes upon those who live in disobedience. And they hear all of that. And, and, and they simply say, well, that's not me. That's not me. I am, after all, at the end of the day, a fairly good person. The unbeliever who will not and cannot own up to their own sins will never repent. And the unbeliever who never repents will never be saved. It is a mercy of God. For the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to come and to show us what we are so that we know what we're called to turn from. 
If you're an unbeliever this morning, you have friends, you, have, you maybe have a Bible, you've heard sermons, you've listened to the radio, whatever the case may be, and, and, and the Spirit of God is continually set before you. You need to turn. You need to repent. You need to embrace Christ. You need to turn from sin and self and embrace the free offer of salvation in Jesus. And you continually refuse to do that because you continually refuse to say or continually refuse to own up to your own sins and your own failures. As long as you're in a position of what the old timers would have called impenitence, an unwillingness to repent, you will never ever see the greatness and the glory of salvation as it is in Jesus Christ. But God's not talking to raw pagans. God's not talking to Canaanites. God's not talking to Hittites. God's not talking to Amalekites. He's talking to people who know His Word. He's talking to people who who have been brought up on Torah. He's talking to people who understand what the sacrificial system is all about. And so what does God make of those who claim to be right with with Him and then yet say, Who? Me? Repent? Of what? Now God's not done making the case. And he makes it in a way that is probably different from any way that we would make the case. If somebody said to you, repent, who, me, for what? You would probably come up with some big, broad, sweeping indictment that would declare their guiltiness. You've got a rebellious heart. You've got a darkened mind. Or worse, or badly, None of us are perfect. God doesn't do that. God actually takes an arrow and draws back the bow and lets it go. And it's specific. Notice what he does. How will we return? That's their retort. And then God says, will a man rob God? Where's that coming from? Yet you are robbing me. And so God goes from this statement of, you return to me and I'll return to you. Grace and mercy. How will, why do we need to return? We haven't done anything wrong. Oh yeah? Well, will a man rob God? God asks an absolutely preposterous question. By the way, the word rob here in Hebrew is to take violently by force. Will a man commit armed robbery against God? Absolutely preposterous. And then God answers his own question with a concrete, tangible reason why they need to repent. Yet, you are robbing me. And so see the connection. Repent? Why do we need to repent? Will somebody rob God? You are robbing me. The preposterous question of will a man rob God has a damning answer. And the answer is, yes, a man will rob God. And you're doing it to me. And that's why you need to repent. Now the retort comes again. Notice, but you say. But you say. How? Have we robbed you? 
The retort is one of defiance. It's one of resistance. How have we robbed you? By the way, this is the same spirit of how have you loved us? And how have we defiled you? And how have we uh, 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 dishonored your name? All of those, how have we, how have we, how have we, all come from the same spirit of defiance. All come from the same resistant spirit. And then here's God's answer. And, and, and it's absolutely magnificent. It's just two words in the Hebrew text. Tithes, offerings. That's it. How have we robbed you? Here's God's answer. Tithes, offerings. Tithes, offerings. It's terse. Now, why not just pick something that's more bad? (laughs) I mean, you know, he does it earlier. He lists a bunch of terrible things like sorcery and adultery and swearing falsely and taking advantage of people. I mean, why not come up with something bad? Repent, and I'll turn to you. Why do we need to repent? Uh, I'll really get them. Tithes and offerings. We wouldn't do that. We'd say something big. We'd say something ugly. We'd say something disgusting. Your heart's dirty. Your mind's filthy. You need to repent because you're just rotten to the core. And God says, "Uh, you need to repent because you're robbing me. How are we robbing you? Tithes and offerings. Now, he points out this sin because it's concrete evidence of their need to repent. He points out this sin because it's readily provable. I'll never forget, I was talking to somebody, you you don't know who these people are, you've never met them in your whole life, so don't try to figure out who these people would be. I was having a conversation with some people, and I won't even tell you what relation they are to me, or if they are any relation to me, and... um, and they, they had just got back from Hawaii. And she's a school teacher, and he was, he was actually still in a nursing school. And, uh, and I said, you guys went to Hawaii? They said, yeah, we were there for two weeks. I'm like, wow, that must have been just great. And then I just blurted out, well, how in the world did you afford that? And they said, well, we haven't had a home church for the last year and a half, so we just saved all of our tithes. And so... <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. So here's, here's, how are we robbing you? Look at your plane tickets. How are we robbing you? Look at the hotel stubs. How are we robbing you? In other words, it was concrete. They took something which belonged to God, used it on something else for themselves, and God says, here is the concrete evidence of your need to repent. You have actually selfishly taken what has belonged to me and have used it for yourself. In other words, when he says, you've robbed me, how have you robbed me? Tithes and offerings. He says, you're cheating me out of what is my due. Cheating me out of what is my due. Doesn't that need to be turned away from, no matter what form it takes? 
God is God and we are not, and there is that which is due him. And any time we refuse or withhold that which is due to God, whether it be tithe and offering, whether it be praise, whether it be obedience, whether it be faith, no matter what it is, we are in essence robbing God. We are cheating him of that which is his just due as creator and father, and it is at core a horrible sin. So don't just say, oh, wow, God was... was uh, picking on a little picadillo as he was telling them how they needed to repent. This is a bigger issue than just the amount of money that was dropped into the temple treasury. Understand that, that, that biblically the tithe, which is 10%, is the basic demonstration that one is living under God's lordship and actually believes that everything that person owns has come from God and belongs to God. The tithe is a basic demonstration that God is my Lord and I am living as a steward under his dominion. And so to cheat or to rob God of the tithe is an act of rebellion. And all rebellion against the Most High God needs to be repented of. Now, now the tithe was mandatory. Offerings were voluntary. Offerings were those that were brought above and beyond that which was required. And so to withhold the tithe was an out-and-out act of rebellion. To withhold offering was actually a demonstration of a heart that was closed to God, a stingy heart, absolutely unaffected by grace. In a sense, the offering was the demonstration of God is so good to me, I'm giving above, over and above what he has required of me. And so he says to the people, you're in rebellion against that which is a basic requirement of relationship with me. And and you also have hearts that are so closed to me that you can't even give offerings anymore. Now, this brings up a question, a debate of whether tithing is required in the New Testament. Often people will say, well, is tithing required in the New Testament? Now, let me, just, let me just say that most of the time, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, that debate is a red herring for trying to give less. Because I've never heard anybody say, is tithing required in the New Testament? Because I really want to give 20%. <laughs> Normally, people say, is tithing required because I only want to give 3%. Now, people set it aside as Old Testament. Well, I don't tithe because I live under the New Testament. I don't live under the Old Testament. Not to give more, but to give less. All right? Now, let me just just throw a few things out to you. And if if this isn't convincing to you, then that's between you and God. First of all, in the New Testament, Jesus taught not to neglect the tithe. Woe to you, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe, dill, mint, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now notice, but these things you should have done, that is, continue to tithe, without neglecting the others. Now most certainly what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 23, 23, is that there are weightier matters of the law that are more important than tithing. But what he says is, don't neglect the weightier things in order to keep the smaller things. Don't neglect the tithe. Okay? Um, in the New Testament, Paul paralleled the support of the priesthood, which under the Old Covenant was with the tithe, with the support of the ministry. 
Christian ministry, 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the whole section, Paul addresses the issue of a special offering that was to be given to to some needy saints, and he lays down principles of giving generously because of grace. And he actually makes some marvelous promises. We won't look at both chapters, but just one sample text. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Starting in verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. As the apostle lays out the principles for giving for this special offering to be taken for the poor needy saints, he basically extols the principle of liberality over limitation. Don't limit yourself. Be liberal. Be liberal in the sense of generous. And that's the principle that he lays down. So if anything, if anything, the believer should see the tithe is minimum. Why would we lower the standard of giving when we ourselves have received the greater grace? Why would we lower the standard of those who gave under the, the law and under types and shadows when we ourselves have entered into the fullness of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And so, is the tithe still applicable? I believe it is. But if you don't, the principle is generosity, not stinginess, liberality over limitation. And here's the bottom line. Giving is a barometer And God uses the barometer in Malachi 3 to show them their need to really, really repent. Money is often the great barometer of our own hearts. Now, this is what God says. He says, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. And then he says this. He says, you're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. So all of a sudden, what God is saying to them is, listen, I have poured out covenant blessing on you after covenant blessing, but now you're going to receive covenant curse. And those covenant curses are going to overturn covenant blessing. And this, is a, um, this curse type is one of general jud- judgment and vengeance by God. All of that to say that this threat shows us that God does not take robbing him lightly. He does not take the attitude of heart that robs him, and he does not take the actual deed of robbing him lightly. You ever had anything stolen from you? How does it make you feel? You walk out to your truck and you realize that that really nice mag light, that flashlight, 
and uh, a few other things are now gone, which means somebody was in my business taking my stuff. And you think, nobody has the right to take my stuff. And here's God, and he says, you know what? It's all mine. I've asked you to give back 10%, and you're robbing me. And because of that, I'm going to overturn the covenant blessings and turn them into covenant curses. And notice also, this was a nationwide epidemic. He says, it's the whole nation of you. I imagine that what was happening in Malachi's day is that their discontentment with God, which actually just seeps through this whole book, they're absolutely discontent with God, and and it just seeps through the whole book, and and, and Malachi is telling us that that discontentment with God actually spread like a contagion among the people. It wasn't just a few who who were withholding here and a few who were withholding there. It actually had become an epidemic so that all the people were becoming stingy, close-hearted to God, not opening up their wallets, as it were, to God. And you could imagine the conversations that may have been going on around the tents and and the houses of Judah as the people were saying, well, you know, God sure hasn't blessed us like I thought he was going to bless us. Boy, the kingdom hasn't come like we thought it was going to come. The temple's built, but God hasn't kept his word. And if God's not going to keep his word, then I'm keeping my tithe. You're going to keep your tithe? Yeah, I'm keeping my tithe. We're going to go to Hawaii. Wow. We don't want to go to Hawaii, but maybe we'll go to Jamaica. So we'll save our tithe too. And so all of a sudden, the contagion spreads throughout the land. And God says to the people, the whole nation of you, you're doing this. Now, at that particular point... We could say, God could justly let the hammer of judgment fall. Right? Here are these people, they're robbing God, they're cheating him of his due. And and we we could say, you know what? If any time was the time for the hammer of judgment to drop, then that was the time. And yet, what do we see in the closing section Of this oracle, verses 10 to 12, we see the faithful God and the blessings of grace, which is absolutely, completely astounding. Now remember, he's already said, return to me and I'll return to you. And they said, we don't need to do that. He says, yes, you do. This is why you need to do that. How are we doing that? Parents, how many times do you let your kids talk back to you? Let me put it this way. How many times should you let your kids talk back to you? None. And when they do, are you committed to acting swiftly? Maybe not consistently, but swiftly. That little cheeky word, that little, that little smart aleck reply, that little word of disrespect, you've pointed something out and... Why do I have to do that? Or I'm not doing that. He's doing that. And you know the whole routine, right? And all of a sudden, there's something in you that says, you know what? Listen, you little son of Adam. Or daughter. God has so established his universe that that's a crime in God's book. And now you're going to be punished for it. There's something about the child talking back that that just begs parental response and parental discipline. 
By the way, if you let your kids talk back to you, don't take Malachi 3 as, 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 as a warrant to letting them talk back. That's not the point. But there is something that rises up in the parent's heart that says, you will not do that. You will not get away with that. And here are the people of God who they are testing God. They're pushing him to the limit. They keep coming back with, how are we doing this? And you're not doing that. And they keep back talking God. And if there was any time where God could say, well, you know what? That's it. You're right. To the gallows with you. Instead, you know what God does? gives them another chance to turn around. He gives them another chance to repent, another chance to come back to him. And, and, and his call to them to repentance, once again, is not this, this scathing spanking. Now, there are those in the prophets, don't make no mistake about it. But how does he appeal to them once they retort? How? Why? What for? God comes back to them. And you know what he, you know what he extends to them once again? He extends to them kindness. Kindness. Even just a casual reading would say, you know what, if I'd have been God, I'd have had it up to here. I'd have sliced them and diced them and left them for dead under the Babylonians' feet. He calls them to repent again. He calls them to bring the tithe which is due to him and then actually says, here's something for you, test me in it. And you'll see that I'll bless you. God's faithfulness in this section is so absolutely remarkable. His kindness is so far over the top. Think about the rebellion, the recalcitrance, the robbery of the people. And then notice this. God says, verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Instead of God saying, that's no way to talk to your father. Over the top with patience and kindness. And I am so glad that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a God of faithful patience and kindness. Now let me just give you two cautions about this text. First, this passage does not teach that a person can become rich by tithing. Okay? We just, I want to make that clear. This passage does not teach that you can become rich by tithing. This is not a, this is not a, a, a get-rich scheme. Okay? That not, has nothing to do with it. Secondly, this passage is not a warrant to put God in a, to the test in ways that he has prohibited in Scripture. Okay? The, the, the test that he talks about is specific and good. There are other times that testing God is not good. We'll look at that. He says, first of all, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. That is, here's, here's his call once again, concrete. Here's his call to turn back. It's with repentance, bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. He doesn't just say, turn back to me generically. He basically says, turn back to me with the fruits of repentance in your hand. That is your tithe. And you come and you bring it to the appropriate place. 
Now, the tithe was used to support the nation's ministry, the priesthood, and her worship. And so the the call is to bring the entire tithe to the appropriate place in order that the business of the church, as it were, could resume and move forward. That is, that there may be food in my house so that things will be moving ahead as they ought to move ahead. Old Testament commentator Douglas Stewart says, Contributions short of the tenth represented a kind of starving of the nation's worship. And so God says, turn back to me, turn back to me, and turn back with the fruits of repentance in your hands. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And then God says, now. That's what we do, right? You tell the kid, get your bike off the front lawn. You tell him a second time, get your bike off the front lawn. Get your bike off the front lawn. Now. Now. And so here's God, and you know what he does? He doesn't say, now. Now, he means now, but he doesn't say now because this isn't a scathing spanking. This is words of grace. And so notice, he says, bring the full tithe like you're supposed to do. And then he says, test me in this. Test me in this. Oh, they were testing him all right, but they weren't testing him in the right way. He says, test me in this. Now, there is a kind of testing of God that is prohibited in Scripture. Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as they did at Meribah. First Corinthians chapter uh, 10 and verse 9, do not put the Lord to the test as they did. And many were consumed in one day. There's a way that we are not to test God. The prohibited kind of testing is the kind of testing where we demand that God prove his existence or verify his word to us. The kind of testing that is prohibited is the kind of testing that is motivated by unbelief and that calls the shots to which we think God must then capitulate. That kind of testing says, I don't believe, you prove yourself to me, and I'm going to set the terms of the proof. You don't do that with God. Don't do that with God. But there's another kind of test, and it's the kind that's here, and and, and it's very different. And it's the kind of test, not where we say out of our unbelief, God, you prove it to me. But it's where God says to us, obey me in this and see. Or, language of Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's a test. Taste, see. Taste, see, and what you'll find out is that I am really good. And so acting on God's word in order to see him keep a promise strengthens faith. And that's what God's telling them here. Act on my word. Do what I'm telling you to do. And you know what you're going to find out? You're going to find out that I'm faithful, that I'm true. And so God invites this kind of investigatory faith. Test me in this. I'm telling you to do something. Do it, and you will see that I will keep my promise. Does your life look like that? You say, this is what God said. This is what God has told me. This is what God requires. This is what God calls me to. And I am going to walk by faith, not by sight. 
And in walking by faith, what I will find is that as I obey, God does indeed keep his promises. As I believe, God keeps his promises. That is simply acknowledging the trustworthy faithfulness of God. God says, if I've said it, you do it. Test me in it. Try me. And I'll show you that I am faithful to you. Now notice, he didn't have to say that. He could have just said, bring the tithe to the storehouse or else. He could have said, you owe me the tithe. Bring it to me or else. And he doesn't. He says, bring the whole thing to the storehouse. Test me in it. And you know what you're going to see? You're going to see that I'm absolutely true to my word. Now, this, this can be a little scary. Let me just tell you a brief story. Back around 1990, 91, Ariel and I were living in Portland, Oregon. I was attending seminary. We had one child. And we were so poor that on one occasion, I had to actually go through my very valuable baseball card collection and sell baseball cards to buy groceries. Seriously. There were times where we had no money and had to ask my mom and dad, could you send $50 so we could go to the grocery store? We visited a church in Gresham, Oregon. We sat down and the pastor was, going to, was preaching on tithing. And the way that we gave in those days was basically... We gave as much as we could, but what was left over, which meant sometimes we didn't give anything, and other times it meant that we gave $10 or $20, depending on what was left over, because things were so tight. And so we hear this sermon on tithing, and the pastor, not in a a condemning way or a a, a scolding way, he simply put forth the reality that only about 2% of Christians actually give 10% or more of their income. And the rest give less, and, and he went through scripture, and, and we were convinced by the time that we were out of there that, that, that God called us to give a tenth of that up front, not what was left over. That was the conviction that we had come to. And on the way home, we both had a sense of conviction that God had been dealing with us, and we started talking about it. And as we were driving back to our little duplex, we said, you know what? We know this is what we need to do, but it's scary. And we sat down, and you know what we did? We took out Ariel's planner. If you, she still carries this thing to this very day. It's got everything in it. And we started looking at the budget and there was no way that we could take 10% and make it work on paper. But what was resounding in our hearts was, test me in this. Test me in this. And so we said, Lord, this isn't going to work out on paper. You, God, can you see this? There's too much red. But we're going to trust you. And from that time, there was never an occasion where we were in lack because we tithed. There was never a time where we said, hmm, what's it going to be, tithe or rent? God didn't make us rich. God did not make us rich. 
But you know what he said? Test me in this and you'll see that I'm faithful to you. And it may not look right on paper, but if you walk by faith, not by sight, it will be right. Some of you, some of you believe that down to your toes. Some of you have lived like that for longer than I've been alive. Others of you need to be so convinced that God says, try me, try me. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going, I'll open the windows of heaven. Now that, by the way, is Old Testament picture for rain, which symbolized the blessing of the Lord. Rain meant crops, crops meant income, income meant giving to the Lord. And I'm going to do it without measure. That is in abundance. Now, now again, put the brakes on and think about what God is saying. He doesn't need to do this. He doesn't need to say this. If they took the whole tithe to the storehouse, they would be doing just what they were supposed to do. And God could have said, listen, just be good servants and do what you're told to do. He could have, he could have given them the Nike ethic. I said, tithe, just do it. But he doesn't. Here's, here's the God who has been defied. Here's the God who has been talked back to. Here's the God who's been rebelled against. Here is the God whose law has been trampled. Here's the God whose covenant has been defiled. And what he says is, you know what? Do what you're supposed to do. Test me in it. Does he have to say test me? No, he can just say, it's your duty. Do it. Test me in this. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open the gates of heaven. I'm going to pour out rain for you in abundance. You know what he's saying? Do what I told you to do, and you'll find grace, and more grace, and grace in the place of grace, and grace on top of grace, and grace overflowing from grace. But that's how God is. God is not some stingy, tight-fisted God who says, you're my servants, and I've got your job descriptions down to a T, and I'm making sure you do everything you're supposed to do. And at the end of the day, you know what I'm going to tell you? You're just my servants, and you're just doing what you're supposed to do. There's nothing in that for you other than knowing you've done your duty. God is not like that. He says, test me. I'll open the windows of heaven. More than that, he says, verse 11, I'll take care of the destroyer. That is the devourer. That is the locust. If you lived in an agricultural society, you would realize that there was so much. You want to know why? I shouldn't say that like that. My hunch is that people who live in agrarian societies are more cognizant of being dependent upon God than people who go to grocery stores. Right? Think so? You don't have to worry if Rayleigh's runs out of food. Now, when we lived in the ranchos, Gorman's did run out of food one time, but that's when we had the flood in 1997. And of course, what did people do? They panicked. All of a sudden, the reality of not having any food for 12 hours started to strike them. Okay? <laughs> If you lived in an agricultural society, you were dependent on God for everything. You were dependent on God to send rain at the proper time, <laughs> right? No hailstorms right before harvest. You were dependent on God to, to, to work the weather out to your advantage. You were dependent on God to give you a bountiful crop, not a bummer crop. You were, you were dependent on God to keep the locusts away. And you know what one of the covenant curses is? 
I'll send locusts to devour your crops. And so here are these people who actually deserve to have locusts come and devour their crops. And God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to reverse the covenant curse. I'm going to keep, I'm going to give you covenant blessing just by simply testing me in this. Totally undeserved. And then he says in verse 11, or verse 12, he says, All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. When you see that word, they'll consider you blessed or blessed. The idea is is that there is a recognized position of favor from God. If you look at a person and say, a person's blessed, what you're saying is that person is in a position of recognized favor from God. And God says, you know what? Just try me in this. Just do what you're supposed to do. Try me in this. And I'm going to open the windows of heaven. And I'm going to keep the, the grasshoppers, the locusts away. I'm going to cause your crops to be bountiful. Now listen to me very carefully. And you are going to be in a posture of blessing. And you are going to be called the delightful land. Now, the reason God does that is not just so that they can have plenty of crops when it comes time for harvest. But so that they in turn can be an attractive witness to those around them so that they can see the power and the grace of God. That's why God blesses. That's why God does good to us. Not just he's committed to do good to us, but he wants us to be, as it were, a walking, talking display of the fact that God is good and he does good to those who will trust in him. He wants to adorn your life with his blessing. He wants to adorn your life with delight. Now, it doesn't mean no affliction. It doesn't mean no trials. It doesn't mean no tribulations. But what it does mean is that you're an open recipient to the blessings of God that manifest itself, are put on display, that you are a person who walks in favor with the Most High God. Doug Stewart again says he's inviting his covenant people to realize that if they will return to him and keep his covenant, he will have in store for them good things their own experience could never equal. So God's simply telling them to do. Repent, turn back to me, bring the fruits of repentance with you. And you know what? As you repent, I'll turn to you and I'll turn to you in such a way that I'll open the very windows of heaven and I'll bless you in ways that you've never even imagined. If you stay closed-hearted and tight-fisted towards me, then, then, then you can't expect this, but just simply do what I've told you to do and I will pour out grace upon grace. If you've been around here for any amount of time, you know how absolutely reluctant I am to preach on money and giving. In fact, probably to a fault. And so, as I was figuring out, working backwards from next week, okay, I can do Malachi 4, 1 to 3 in the morning and 4 to 6 in the evening, and that means I'll do 3, 3 to 18 in the evening. And then, oh, my goodness, chapter 3, verses 12 to 17 in the morning. They're going to think it's a year-end whipping on tithing. <laughs> I overcame that reluctance because as I was meditating on the passage on Thursday, I realized that this is exactly what God has for us at the end of the year as we start a new year. As we conclude the year and begin a new year, God has certain things for us in this text. And the first is this. 
Let us be sure, let us be diligent to keep our hearts and our lives turned toward the Lord this coming year. Let us make sure that our heart's attitude is right towards God and that we are turned towards Him. As we, rem- as we maintain repentant hearts, open to God's dealings with us, as we remain willing to change Sunday school, as we, as we remain open to the refiner's fire, then we will know that God is indeed turned to us. Now, I want to qualify that because under the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 40, God has said, I will not turn away from you to do you good. Because of Jesus, we have the guarantee that we will never be separated from the love of God. Because of Jesus, we have the confidence that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus, we know that he who began the good work in us will complete it till the day of Christ. Because of Jesus, we know, we are confident that we will be kept by the power of God through faith. We have confidence that we are in his hand and that nobody can snatch us from his hand and we will never ever perish. Because of Jesus, there is a covenant promise that God will not turn away from us to do us good. But understand that to have hardened hearts, to have stiff necks, to have closed hearts to what God is doing will incur His divine discipline. And sometimes divine discipline can be God withdrawing from us, not separating us from him, but withdrawing his sense of presence from us. And so the first thing that this passage declares to Grace Community Church is this. Keep turned towards the Lord this next year. Keep your heart turned towards God. Keep open hearts to what God is going to do in you and through you. And I'd remind us this morning, it's a community project. We're in this together. Oh, how we want, how we desire, how we how we covet, greedily covet to come to this place Lord's Day by Lord's Day and to know the smile of God on us. Keep your heart turned to the Lord. Help each other keep your heart turned to the Lord. Second, let's be faithful in giving. Now, this is where I have to be really careful because so, so many of you are so wonderfully faithful and incredibly generous. Grace Community Church is an absolutely generous giving body. We finished the end of the year because of our computer program, not today, but last Sunday, and God provided for us exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. In what was a difficult year. And so I I commend you. You are faithful and generous givers. Now, to be sure, there may be one or two or three that are robbing God. But I'm not worried about you. You know why? Because the Spirit of God has you. You heard that today and you're thinking, I'm guilty. But as a body, let's push ahead this next year in faithfulness and continued generosity, and in so doing, you know what we'll be able to do? We will be postured to move ahead in ministry and mission and proclamation. 
That's why you bring the tithe to the storehouse so that there will be an abundance of food. In other words, that nothing will be lacking. You'll have everything you need so that you can move ahead. I pray to God that we will be so free from the ordinary financial encumbrances that we'll be able to say, God has brought in so much that let's send out 10 Anastrakens this year. Let's send out 100 God says, test me in this. Test me in this. And then finally, as we seek to have open and ready to repent hearts, as we seek to be generous and sacrificial in our giving, you know what we'll see? We will taste and see that the Lord is good. Who knows? Who knows what blessings he has in store for us this year? I don't. We don't know what trials and afflictions he has in store for us this year either. But here's the point. Whatever those abundant blessings are, they will serve to point people not to us, but to the God who is abundant in loving kindness and goodness to those who believe him. And so let's Let's make 2007 the year where we say, Lord, we want hearts that are turned to you. We, we want all of our stuff to be your stuff. And we're just going to believe your word in this. And however you deem to open up the windows of heaven and however you deem to protect us from the devourer, however you deem to do all of that, that's your sovereign providential dealings with us and we know that it'll be for our good. But help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to be focused on you. Help us to give to you our all in all. We're the whole realm of nature mind that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's pray. You, O Lord, are a great God. And you're so patient with people like us. People who deserved your judgment a long time ago. But we thank you for Jesus who bore our judgment in his body on the tree that we might be brought near to you. And Father, we do pray that this passage would impact our hearts and our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we would simply test you in this and see that you always keep your word. Father, be glorified in our hearts and our lives. Be glorified in this body. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.